Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. In 1972, a photographer for the Associated Press named Nick Ott took a picture of a naked Vietnamese girl running away from a napalm attack. This was uh, the height of the Vietnam War. He was a photojournalist, and it was widely published then. It was a shocking picture, which I'd say is now iconic. It, uh, it certainly sparked discussion about the Vietnam War sparked uh, outrage about it then. Um, And now that same photograph is causing controversy again, but this time it's about the role of Facebook. Um, Last month, a uh, Norwegian novelist posted the picture, and a Facebook algorithm noticed a naked minor in the picture, which led to being taken down. The novelist got banned from Facebook, and that led to a long face-off that ended up... um, pitting the Norwegian prime minister against uh, Mark Zuckerberg, or at least made them both parties to the controversy. Now, the picture has been reinstated after a uh, widespread protest that included a lot of people posting it. In the middle of it all, though, Zuckerberg said, uh, hey, Facebook is a tech company, not a media company. Jessica, is there a difference between those two things, in your opinion? And what do you make of this whole thing? We've talked on the show before about the sort of censorship in the wake of history, that you can't rename something because we're now in contemporary culture uncomfortable with something that was done long ago. So this, as you rightly say, Michael, iconic photograph captured a moment. Uh, it went viral at a time when we didn't use the word viral. But it happened. And so what's what's happened at the Facebook end is that an algorithm is in place to catch things. And we are reaching very quickly the limit, or at least I think it's becoming clear to us that there are limits, on the fact that algorithms cannot make decisions that are, in fact, ethical and human. In a situation where the content is user-generated at such a vast scale, as is the case with Facebook, what alternative to a algorithm, um, crude or refined as it may be, to sort of moderate content? I mean, you don't want to say, hey, everyone put up your child porn on Facebook, put up advertising for guns on Facebook. There are algorithms that are meant to be blocking those things. And whether or not they view themselves as a media company, they certainly... uh, welcome the notion that um, as many people as possible, the whole world if possible, sort of views them as the primary source of information, news, channels of communication, everything else. It's all to the greater glory of uh, Facebook. And somehow they're managing to do all these things without wrestling with the kind of responsibility that journalists and editors and people who have served as the head of news organizations have struggled with traditionally for decades, if not centuries. It's a quandary for sure, but it's also leading, I think, so far to these very carefully worded cop-outs. Well, the alternative is we see time and time again, or at least we've, we have in, in recent months, examples where the algorithm-led decision uh, results in a travesty. So remember when Microsoft released the millennial chatbot named Tay? We talked yeah, about yeah, that Tay, on our show. Yeah. So this week in The Guardian, there's a story about the first international beauty contest decided by an algorithm. Mm. And that sparked controversy because the results revealed that, that, that the algorithm didn't like dark skin. 
right? Yeah, preferred, so, preferred whiter skin, exactly. Right. So in cases of where human judgment might be thought to be biased, at least it's human judgment. At least one can discuss it. There's reason. There's emotion. There's intention. There's some kind of reflection, one hopes, in the making of a decision. Anybody who's ever judged a, a design competition knows you have to actually weigh your decisions with the other jurors and think about what is appropriate and timely and revolutionary and new. It's, it, it's the idea that choice. I would like a bot to fold my laundry. I can understand even the, the, the driverless car. I would like the bot to do more than just do wayfinding for me. But the idea that we would give up choice, that is the primary thing that separates us uh, from machines. Yeah, but, right? but, but I think to a remarkable degree, people in this way you can view as insidious, if you like, are already kind of seeding the first step of making a choice to any sort of prompt that has the, if you like this, you will also like that sort of thing. And that's whether you're listening to Pandora or whether you're going on Amazon. That's, you know, as I understand it, that's some algorithm sort of uh, extrapolating from your previous preferences what your future preferences might be. And when they do it right, it's kind of like, ooh, it's a miracle. But it's sort right. of also And when they is, do it wrong, yeah. it's, it's laughable. There was a guy this week on the Moth Radio Hour who is a, is a uh, guy who writes algorithms who figured out how to hack into OkCupid and find the woman who became his wife. And it's very charming and very funny, and it makes you feel really useless because none of us go about finding our significant other through quite those kinds of circumstances, but he explained it quite well. What's going on here is that algorithms are being used as a uh, substitute for human judgment. And that sounds like a bad thing, but on the other hand... Um, Human judgment isn't some remote concept. It means that actual people are deciding things. And, uh, you know, okay, Cupid, that's you deciding on a possible mate. And so that's a fairly personal decision that's rightly made in the end by a person uh, with the help, perhaps, of some sort of mathematical assistance. Um, you know, when it comes to what images are worthy of being seen, which are not, you know, those kind of judgments were made for years by, by editors and publishers or curators or different people who are seen as having some sort of authority. And I think we live in an age where that kind of authority is looked at with some suspicion. And um, it's clear that something is lost when we um, just sort of forego the judgment of individuals, regardless of who they are, in favor of just kind of turning it over to machines. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe fair to say that uh, part of what's complicated here is that when you see an image that is not a contemporary image, it's not implicit that you can contextualize its power, its origin, uh, how it actually mattered at the time it was taken. In fact, there's a wonderful book uh, by a woman named Susan Engel, a psychologist, called Context is Everything, the Nature of Memory. It's really great. I mean, she talks about how the defining characteristics of memory are contextual. So I think if you come back to that napalm photograph, it's probably fair to say that many people looking at it do not understand why it was so powerful and, and, and that it was connected to the Vietnam War. All you can see is a full frontal nude photograph of a naked girl, which uh, fits basically the stated uh, description of child pornography, right? And I think there's something about the passage of time and the inevitable separation of images from their original source that actually just leads to that sort of thing. And it so happens that we're recording this podcast on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and the thing that just is fated to happen is already happening as far as that event goes, where we're seeing um, 
you know, this preposterous and quite rightly kind of uh, reviled uh, uh, local commercial that was done for a mattress store uh, uh, in the Southwest uh, where they're advertising, you know, come to, they have two twin towers of mattresses and then they, they knock them over and they say, come and buy mattresses, you know, on 9-11, never forget. It's just as like appalling and you can't believe that it's not meant to be a, you know, a shockingly bad taste, funny skit, but instead it was meant evidently as an earnest way to persuade people to buy mattresses. You know, that's just the first volley of something that will increasingly kind of intrude in the public consciousness as as we get more and more distance from an event that, you know, um, certainly, um, you know, you and I and many of our listeners, uh, you know, witness in real time and experience, but anyone under the age of 15 now will just know it increasingly from history books and from a series of images that just will ultimately be grist for the mill in popular culture and separated more and more from, you know, the genuine horrors and loss of that day. You know, I mean, the same could be said about people not understanding the Holocaust because they didn't live through it. So what is our responsibility as uh, anyone who knows better to transmit that information in a way that doesn't seem like, you know, a boring, I have to memorize facts and figures, to bringing to light uh, visual evidence of times past in such a way that their power and importance uh, you know, is really understood in a, in a much broader public way. I think it's a very tall order for anybody, but certainly it behooves us to think about how, I mean, these examples are unbelievable. There's the, you know, the, the towers of Coke cans in a store uh, that, that is meant to be the, the towers. And then this sort of, uh, you know, the, the two British teenagers who won a costume contest for being the Twin Towers. So, uh, so I don't know really how you solve that except to keep talking about it in a way where education becomes part of, part of the, the, just the way we, we live and, and the information that we share and the images that we post are not just appropriated, you know, wantonly with disregard for what they mean. King mattress! Twin price! Store wide sale all day long! <laughs> this is the point in the show when you usually hear from a sponsor. Instead of that, this week we want to ask you to support the observatory. Not money, we're not asking you for money. We're asking you to rate us on the iTunes store, and especially by leaving a review. Now, um, Apple doesn't make it easy to leave a review on the iPhone you have to search in the iTunes store, and then it takes you over to the podcast app. Now, I use the Apple Podcast app, and I have no complaints about it, but it isn't um, easy to leave a review on it, that's for sure. Hey, if you're using iTunes on a desktop computer, there's another flow that's a different kind of thing, but it's also sort of a headache. You have to wonder, given Apple's commitment to design, whether this tedious multi-step process is conscious. In fact, maybe an algorithm helps you make it. <laughs> Well, the truth is, honestly, God, please, 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 uh, reviews and ratings are the strongest signal to Apple that people care about this show and that more people should find out about it. So please leave us a review. And thank you. Hey, speaking of Apple, um, I saw um, last week um, the, the, the biggest and best and most specialist Apple store I've ever seen. I had taken the subway downtown to a meeting at One World Trade, the building known to some people as Freedom Tower. I was going up to a meeting there. People Now it's just one goes to meetings there as if it's uh, just any other building. No, I thought all Apple stores were the same. Why is this one different? There's nothing special about this Apple store except given the setting, it just seems bigger and better and nicer and more 
you know, just more Apple story than any other Apple story I've ever been in. It's just a sort of like, it doesn't contrast with its uh, surroundings as it does so often in other contexts. And I think it also is Calatrava inadvertently, you know, aligned his aesthetic, which is pure white formalism with the very familiar minimalist aesthetic that we know from Apple and from its retail facilities. And the whole thing just kind of works together beautifully. Now, there's an interesting issue about what is just blatantly and deliriously a celebration of commerce and capitalist consumption happening on this site where I'm not but sure. But in a minimalist way. In a minimalist way. But, I mean, it is, it, it, you know, it's 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 at once kind of um, comforting to know that um, luxury shopping can and will go on on the site of an enormous tragedy. And um, it's, you know, it's disconcerting, too. I mean, this is, like, really a nice shopping mall. This will be the, you know, I mean, I can imagine people from all over the country will come here, their jaws will drop, and then they'll go into, you know, uh, one of the stores and buy something. But it just is, you know, I mean, it's not like the Parmertown Mall in Ohio. There's no piercing pagoda or, you know, temporary tattoo place. This is all, like, uh, really fancy, beautifully designed stores that are all kind of uh, lubricating your way from um, uh, the train that brought you in from New Jersey to the train that'll take you up to uh, uh, midtown Manhattan. And but on the, commercials, on the commercial scale, I mean, is it really any different from Exit Through the Gift Shop? Um, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. It's, uh, there was a um, letter to the editor that um, the, architect, the late architect Stephen Eisenhower, who was a co-author of Learning from Las Vegas, uh, um, wrote to the New York Times where he said that um, our ability to shop in our cities was the highest expression of how we could participate in them and that, it w- that somehow commerce and civic life in America particularly, but perhaps historically through millennia, have been so intertwined that the idea that you would say, you know, this place is too special to have stores in it is, uh, doesn't seem right. You know, maybe the normalization of a site, the celebration of a site, inevitably involves uh, buying something you can put in a shopping bag and then display as you move about the rest of the city. I'm sure you saw the the video announcing the iPhone 7 this week. I mean, yeah, 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 it, yeah. you know that it's you know it's it's black and white. It's fast paced. It's percussive. It's you can imagine people getting excited about buying their iPhone 7s all over the world. It's a well, which gets well, back well. to this idea of these stores. I mean, they're still beautiful because everything that Apple does is beautiful. But the, but it is you know equally um, uh, easy to get your hands on an iPhone 7 uh, online as it is in going into some beautiful store that is part of some bu- beautiful civic experience. Well. I passed through uh, uh, Santiago's Cathedral of Commerce and uh, this new Apple store before the announcement of iPhone 7, so uh, it was still under wraps at that point. But it's interesting. I think that um, there's been a lot of criticism leveled against the specifics of that product and questions about whether Apple's exhausted its uh, capacity for design innovation. It just seems like it's getting down to refinement now. And I think there's also this kind of very specific and, and kind of like startling uh, panic over the elimination of the earphone jack in the, uh, in the phone. It sounds like you uh, liked the launch video, eh? 
I loved it. I, yeah. I, I'm embarrassed to say. I mean, I really, I, I was salivating. <laughs> um, I've read everything about how the, they've they've exhausted their reach. That you know they're on their way down. That it doesn't have an earphone jack. You watch that video and you covet every single piece. You can't not. It's it's beautiful. It's I mean, it's really really expertly edited and beautifully executed. And it may be arguably superior to any of the products that it's um, actually touting, but everyone really seems to like that video, and I really really like it. It's very witty. It sort of has all these kind of crazy non sequiturs, like they're talking about uh, at one like point. Like the professor from yeah, the professor, physics yeah, professor. Talking, I, lo- I love her. <laughs> they're talking oh about God. like the Brilliant. light levels that the photography works at. Then they just cut right to an NYU physics professor standing in a classroom in front of uh, what I presume are lots of equations and maybe even, God help us, algorithms on the blackboard behind her. <laughs> With a little bit of research, it turns out her name is Maria Mojaz. So she is now perhaps the most famous physics professor. Uh, in the world. I, wa- I hope that woman <laughs> I, becomes a superstar in uh, all future Apple commercials. I love that. The thing I like best about it, it took me a while to figure out why I just loved it so much. Then I realized that it really is basically a contemporary version of my favorite movie trailer of all time and one of my favorite pieces of motion graphics of all time, which is the trailer that um, the brilliant designer Pablo Ferro did for the movie Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's basically, I mean, it's made of exactly the same ingredients. It has, a, it has this kind of like funny per- percussive score. Words spell on one at a time. They're not in uh, Apple sans serif, but they're in, um, uh, they're in all caps Futura because it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, but then it's just, there's the same sort of, you know, one word at a time, and then weird cutting to live action bits, weird disruptive things that are non sequiturs. It's but what year put, did he do that? That's that's what oh, that uh, would have been early sixties, I think. But okay, it's, so it's, here's it's, here's yeah, why I think yeah, it is exactly we'll brilliant, brilliant analogy. But we'll I think what's great them, about I, this, they did one really the strategic idea to tell you at the beginning how long it's going to be. <laughs> Yeah. Is is we live in the world of the listicle. You you know it's it, you're told now when you look online that something's going to be a five minute read or a ten minute read, right? Which is kind of ridiculous because presumably we all read at different levels. But I think there's like a you, you sort of build confidence in your viewer by telling them at the outset how much of a commitment they're going to make before they watch. And so in Doctor Strangelove, it uses time in terms of the metaphor of the ticking bomb. Yeah, 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 Here, yeah. it's a, not a ticking bomb, but it's still. I mean, both of them d- rely on these temporal models of, of audience expectation that I think are fascinating. You know, two minutes is a long time for a video. If I've worked on motion graphic pieces, I'll triumphantly kind of get it down to two minutes. Then I'll look at it and I'll think, Jesus, this thing is like you know, interminable. It sort of seems like you're watching, uh, you know, endless documentary about something you don't care about. It just drags. This is like really, I have to admit, they just kind of keep it rolling. It's like really impressive. Right. I think that they're going to, and now thanks to this podcast, they're going to rename it How to Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the iPhone 7. (laughs) Oh. Anything that caught your eye this week that you want to talk about? There's a film that came out this summer. Uh, many of our listeners may have already seen it. I just caught up with it. It's the latest film by the American director Todd Solons, who's done films like Happiness and Storytelling, uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, this film is called Wiener Dog, and it is about, as you might imagine, a dachshund. He, he is the champion of highbrow, lowbrow. Right? I mean, this is a guy who filmically 
he is in, in a beautifully indulgent with cinematography. There are long tracking shots and quiet shots, and he doesn't overdo it with underscoring. There's an incredible visual poetry to the way he shoots, but he shoots these stories about the banality of existence. Dog excrement makes a very important <laughs> scene, and there is a shot uh, that never before or perhaps again will a director ever uh, have a kind of visual uh, love story to poop. Todd Salon's movies are generally sort of kind of depressing in a way, aren't they? Yeah, and um, uh, I should say that Todd Solons was a year ahead of me in college, and um, he was this kind of tall, skinny, depressing person, uh, uh, you know, who there was always, I remember he, you know, sort of dressed like his mother picked out his clothes. Um, don't think I would have seen him going on to become the prolific filmmaker that he is. But yeah, there is a kind of undercurrent in all his films of, of the kind of the, you know, the, the disaffected, the, the kind of the, the, the nomadic uh, person who's, who's the misfit. Uh, there's a wonderful Austrian writer named Arthur Schnitzler who wrote uh, this famous book in the late 19th century called La Ronde, which is told also like a roundabout story. He likes these stories that have these different kind of uh, orbits of narrative around characters, but th and, they, and they tend to not really have necessarily anything in common. And he's not so interested in stitching them together, but I think cumulatively they become, they sort of bespeak this, this pathos he has for, for the, you know, the person who's perhaps not, uh, not mainstream. Um, and, uh, and and I should say also just uh, not not for nothing. This dog is so is like <laughs> just just so adorable. But yeah, you're going to want to run out and buy a dachshund, I, I, or go to your local rescue and hope there's one there because this dog is just delicious. I believe that uh, um, Wiener Dog is a sort of sequel to his very first movie, which was Welcome to the Dollhouse, where um, there's a it's the story of in part of a. Uh, uh, a forlorn, very nerdy girl, played by the actress Heather, Heather Matarazzo, uh, and her character is Dawn Wiener. And um, the good news for every lonely, nerdy high school kid is that you can grow up to be uh, Greta Gerwig, who actually plays Dawn Wiener in this, in this <laughs> quasi-sequel. Exactly. So uh, hope for everyone you may, too, be Greta Gerwig. Heel! Damn it. Heel! Mother... So what did you see this week that you liked? Online, uh, there's been some stories circulating by this very talented um, woman who works on the staff of the Hillary Clinton campaign, who's put together, I saw it on Medium first, this really interesting account of how uh, she helped create the online digital standards, sort of the playbook for how uh, all the online communications for uh, the Hillary campaign reach us, uh, whether it's uh, email or social or uh, digital on different platforms. And it's really a beautifully worked out book of interrelated patterns and typefaces, colors, uh, great protocols that kind of keep that campaign looking, you know, really, really tight. Uh, and she's part of a very big staff out in Brooklyn that's uh, doing really nice work that's setting a great level for what election campaign material can look like. But the best thing about the uh, system that she led the creation of is its name, which is Pantsuit. And so everything that comes out of the campaign has to conform to Pantsuit, uh, which I just thought was like witty and 
and funny and just uh, made me really smile when I saw it. So we'll put a link to it. The designer's name is Mina Markham. She's done a great job with it. And uh, uh, The thing about uh, a pantsuit that I also love is that um, Mina Markham's title is Senior Software Engineer and Pantsuit Seamstress at Hillary <laughs> for America. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah really that good. is good. Really, so good. really well done. Very well done. Well done, Mina. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. There you can find links to the things we discussed today, including the best trailer ever made, Pablo Ferro's 1964 movie trailer for Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Stopped Worrying or Love the Bomb. Hey, if you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about the Observatory or go to iTunes and rate us and leave a review. You don't have to give us five stars, but as we said before, reviewing the show really makes a difference. Between episodes, keep up with designers around Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Talk to you soon, Jessica.